Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Last week, we uh, just kind of teed up this sermon by looking at Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, we finished the study of the book of Jonah, and then we wanted to uh, take a little bit of a break as we were getting ready to celebrate our anniversary. Um, and in doing that, we wanted to look at Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 12. We've been studying the book uh, Gentle and Lowly, which I just, again, want to encourage all of you to read. If you are not in a study, still pick up the book. If you have not read the book, you got to read it. It's amazing. shows us the heart of Christ uh, for you as a believer who is still on this earth, still struggling with sin, still walking through trials. And so we, we looked first at the work of our great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4. Our great high priest is amazing in more ways than we could possibly comprehend, and that's why we run to him. That's why we live out what Hebrews 12 tells us to live out, to fix our eyes on Christ and run to him. As we celebrate our anniversary together, as we celebrate seven years as a church, I don't want us to coast, I don't want us to grow complacent or grow weary or begin to think that we have it together and we don't have to work hard. I want us to keep striving. I want us to keep running well. And this morning, I want to ask the question, how will we ensure that we continue to run well as a church? How will we have assurance that we will finish our race as a church well? How will we go through the future glorifying the Lord by faithfully following him? There will be seasons of gain for us as a church, seasons of loss, seasons of joy, seasons of sorrow. But through it all, the question before us this morning is how can we ensure that we're going to continue to follow God in a way that pleases him and ensures our ultimate uh, being at the finish line together? There's many metaphors in the Bible for the Christian life. It's a, a war to be waged. It's a, a fight to be fought. It's a cross to be carried. And it's a race to be run. It's a race to be run to its completion, not just start the race, but finish the race. Not just get into the race, but end the race. The prize, as we've seen in Revelation 2 and 3, that we will get back to, Lord willing, next uh, year, the prize is only given to the overcomer, to he who overcomes. So we need to make it to the finish line. But how are we going to do that? How do we run our race well? How do we do it individually? How do we do it corporately? That's what this text is going to answer for us this morning, how we run our race well. So let's read it together, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you 
will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, we ask that you would work in the life of our church today. As we look back on seven years of your faithfulness in our church's life, that we would look forward to anticipating your faithfulness in our church's life as we run. We don't run to earn your favor. We run because you've already graciously given us your favor. We don't run in order to uh, make you love us. We run because you've already lavished your love upon us. We run freely. We, we run as men and women who have been freed by the gospel. And yet we run. And so, Father, I pray that we would think individually this morning about our own lives as we run, but also corporately as a church, how we can encourage each other to live these things out as a church. That every Sunday morning we'd gather together with the purpose, intentionality to help each other run their race well. That we wouldn't show up here to grow our head knowledge, that we wouldn't show up here to learn some intellectual academic exercise. We'd show up here to be encouraged that getting to the finish line to see Jesus is better by far than anything in this world. So help us today. Be our guide. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and our great High Priest. Amen. The author of Hebrews says, Let us run with endurance, the race that's set before us, which begs the question, how do we run the race? If the prize is only for those who finish and not merely for those who begin the race, how can we be certain to press on to the race's end? I believe that there are three ways that the author of Hebrews gives us in these verses of how we are to run individually and corporately as a whole church, as a whole congregation. Number one, Three ways that we are to run this race well. Number one, if we're to run well, we need to listen to the witnesses. We need to listen to the witnesses. This is verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we have a, a great cloud of witnesses that's surrounding us. We have uh, witnesses that are telling us about the glory of heaven, about the glory of Christ. We need to listen to their testimony. They've finished the race. The image here goes all the way back in chapter 11 to all those in that Hall of Fame of Faith chapter who have finished their race, who made it to the end, and who are saying to us, as it were, in grandstands around the track that we're running on, you can make it. You can get to the end. You'll be able to come to the finish line and finish the race, and it's worth it. All of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 are telling you it's worth it. I know you can't see heaven, but it's real and it's worth it. I know you can't see Jesus, but he's real and he's worth it. Everybody knows you need encouragement as you're playing in an athletic competition, right? We see this even today, right? We have football stadiums that are, are piping in uh, noise, right? No fans are in the stadiums because of COVID stuff, but they're piping in fan noise because it just seems really strange to not have people who are cheering on their team. Just to watch people playing football or watch people playing baseball with zero audience participation and interaction just seems strange. 
So here too, the author of Hebrews says, as we are running in this race, we have people in the grandstands who are, are yelling at us, are screaming at us. Don't give up. You can make it. And Christ is worth it. These are not passive observers. They're not just watching passively as we run the race. They're engaged participants. They're giving testimony. They're speaking to us through the word of God. And we can hear their testimony. I remember uh, when I was playing baseball in high school, I remember I'd get up to, to bat or I'd be pitching on the mound and um, you know, you just hear a, a wall of noise of the, the audience, the, the fans in the stand that are yelling and screaming. And then I remember after the game's over, I'd always, you know, either drive with my dad or when I'd get home, I'd talk with my dad and he would say, hey, did you hear me when I was telling you to do this or to do that? Did you hear? Could you hear what I was telling you to do? And I would say, no, there's no way I could hear. I couldn't single out your voice. It was just this wall of noise, like hurry up, do, you know, just this crazy loud wall of noise. But the witnesses in scripture are different. They're yelling just like my dad was. But you can actually articulate what they're saying. You can single out every specific voice. Why? Well, because there's two types of witnesses. There's two types of witnesses that I believe the author of Hebrews would tell us about. He gives us explicitly one type, which is witnesses who have gone before us in the Bible and finished their race. There are people in the Bible who have finished their race who are telling us through their testimony that God is worth it. You could just write down 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. These things uh, are written down for our instruction and our hope. All that happened in the Old Testament is written down for our instruction and hope. Romans 15, verses 4 through 6 says the same thing. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, for hope, for encouragement, to enable us to persevere. So we have this book given to us, written down by God through men, for the purpose of helping us run the race to its completion. We have witnesses here who are speaking to us. And I just think about the last seven years as a church. Listen to the witnesses that have spoken to us. We began our church studying the book of Philippians. Paul is the witness who is speaking to us from the grandstands, yelling at us to live as Christ and death is gain. It's better by far. He says it's very much better to depart and be with Christ. He's a witness telling us the gospel has power to save. The gospel has power to sanctify. Remember chapter 4, those two women that are fighting. He says the gospel can bring repair and reconciliation, and the church can help in that. He gave us so much testimony of how we can run our race. After Philippians, we move to the gospel of John, and John explicitly tells us his purpose. He wants to prove through his book, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would believe, and by believing that, you would have life in his name. Not just mental assent, right? That's not what John defines as belief. Not just agreeing with facts, but coming to Jesus for satisfaction. John defines what faith is. John defines what saving belief is. It's not just agreeing with facts. It's saying, I need Jesus. Of course, I believe the facts are true, but I go beyond that to loving him, to cherishing him, to coming to him for nourishment, right? He's the, the bread of life and the fountain of living water. Then we went to Judges. We studied Judges for a whole year. We have witnesses and Judges, both good and bad. We have several bad witnesses that tell us how not to run our race. We have witnesses and Judges that would remind us today that are in heaven, some of them in chapter 11, that are telling us today 
God's grace will sustain you even in your failures. Look to him and don't let up. Then we went to Ruth. You guys remember studying Ruth? We went to the book of Ruth to see God's sovereign hand. Ruth would tell us this morning as a witness, hey, you're going to look back on your life and you're going to say, man, it just so happened so many times to see the glory of God in his sovereign hand at work in your life. Don't take a day for granted. She would say, look for his handiwork on display. Then we went to Habakkuk as we began this season of COVID. We studied the book of Habakkuk to learn how we are supposed to lament, to learn that we should lament, to learn that lament is necessary. We can cry out to God. We can wrestle with him and say, I'm not leaving until you bless me like Jacob did. Then we went to Jonah to see the grace of God on display. So on and so forth. The entirety of the Bible is filled with witnesses that would tell you and me this morning, Jesus is worth it. They would tell you sin satisfies, but it destroys you ultimately. It's not worth it ultimately. It brings pleasure in a temporal sense, but ultimately destroys your soul. So my friends, I, I want to plead with you. If we're going to keep running our race well, we need to listen to the witnesses that are given to us in the scriptures. Give yourselves to the word of God every second of every day. Meditate on it. Dive into it in the morning. Open it up. Read it. But then meditate on it. Let it be your compass. Let it be the lenses with which you see the world. Let the witnesses keep on speaking to you as you memorize scripture, as you're, as you're talking with other believers and they're bringing up scripture. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. That's the only way that we can ensure we're going to run the race well. That's the first type of witness. There's a second type of witness, though. As the author of Hebrews tells us to listen to the witnesses, he'll also tell us not only biblical witnesses in the past, but also witnesses in the present. Those in your life who are running with you, ahead of you, around you, listen to their testimony. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. There are leaders given to the church for the purpose of helping those run their race. Those who desire to run well, listen to the leaders as they learn, learn from their example of how not to do it, and they know how not to do it, and then listen to them as they speak the word of God to your hearts. Intentionally give yourselves not only to the word of God, but the testimony of those who are running with you in this race now. That's why we gather as a church. We can't live in isolation. If you run in isolation, you will not make it to the end. So you have to listen to the witnesses. And we do this together in small groups. That's why we gather in small groups. We listen to the witnesses, not only of each other, that Jesus is better. We listen to the witnesses that have been given to us in the books that we read. Uh, godly men who are, who are writing down a testimony of the grace of God in their lives. So the author of Hebrews would say, if we were to ask him, how do we run the race well? Number one, listen to the witnesses. What are, who are the witnesses? Number one, Witness number one, in the word of God, those who have run their race before you, and then witness number two, those who are running with you, around you. Let them help you. Let them guide you. Let them encourage you. Don't run in isolation. The second way that we will run our race well, the author of Hebrews says it in the middle of verse one, not only listen to the witnesses, but lay aside the hindrances. Lay aside the hindrances. This is the middle of verse one. Let us also... Notice he says, let us, so it's not just let you, you need to do this, but us together. 
We as a body need to do this, not living in individuality, but corporately together. We, us, us together, we together. But also let us also. So listen to the witnesses who did this. Let's do it like they did it. Let us also, just as they did, lay aside hindrances and encumbrances that they had to lay aside. Let's learn from their examples. We listen to their example. Let's listen and also do what they did. But notice the author of Hebrews gives us two kinds of hindrances. When we say lay aside the hindrances, there's actually two kinds of hindrances. Just like there's two kinds of witnesses, there's two kinds of hindrances. The first hindrance is an encumbrance. Let us lay aside, my Bible says, every encumbrance. And the second is, and the sin which so easily entangles us. So we've got an encumbrance and we have a sin. What's the difference? So number one, an encumbrance. An encumbrance is anything that slows down your running and it impedes your progress. Literally, an encumbrance is a word that was used to speak of everything that the runner in a race back then would strip off before running the race. Anything that would slow them down as they're running. They wanted to ensure that nothing would burden them down, slow them down. So how can we define an encumbrance? I love that there's two types of hindrances. An encumbrance is a good thing that becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. Uh, an encumbrance is a good thing that turns into a bad thing when you make it an idol, right? When it becomes your functional God, when it becomes your functional Savior, when it becomes an idol, a good thing that God has given turns into a bad thing when you idolize it above and beyond who Jesus Christ is. So what are these kinds of encumbrances? What are these kinds of hindrances? First of all, before I give you specific examples, let me tell you, it's really simple to figure out what's slowing down your progress as you run. Just start running the race. Just start running the race. And whatever you find impeding your progress as you run will become obvious. Only those who fail to run at all feel no resistance. So if you're going to run well, as you're running the race, you'll figure out what's slowing you down. You'll figure out what is stealing your affections. Maybe totally good things. We're not talking immoral things. We're talking totally good things that start to slow you down because they distract you. They're idols. Good things that become bad things. What are some examples? Maybe fashion, fame, leisure, Academic goals, sports, friendships, books, professional ambitions, hobbies, television, the internet, genre of movies or music, boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife, children. There are so many different good things, gifts that God has given to us, but we say it a lot here at church. God's gifts are great, but God's gifts make terrible gods. They make terrible gods. So throw them away. You say, well, I'm not aware of any hindrances. I'm not mindful of any hindrances in my life. And I would just submit to you, can I ask you, are you even running the race? Because only those who fail to run feel no resistance. So are you running the race? The second type of hindrance, not only an encumbrance that's a good thing that becomes a bad thing when it becomes an idol or a god in your life, a functional savior in your life, but secondly, truly immoral things. That's why he says sin. You have... Uh, lay aside every encumbrance and lay aside every sin. 
This is the second thing we must lay aside, sin. This is obvious, not neutral, okay gifts that God has given, but things that are sinful that must be dealt with. And it must be dealt with with whatever it takes. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. Radical amputation. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it far from you. It's better for your body to go lame and blind into heaven than whole into hell. Do whatever it takes. So the author of Hebrews would tell us this morning, if you want to run, you need to look at your life. If you want to run well, you need to look at your life and you need to ask two questions. Are there good things that have become bad things because I've turned them into idols? Are there good things in my life that I love more than God? And then secondly, are there sins in my life that are slowing me down that I am not dealing with? You cannot run to the finish line if you play with your sin, if you coddle your sin. John Piper says it this way, until you believe that life is war at the stakes of your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity with no blood earnestness, no vigilance, no passion, no wartime mindset. And if that's where you are this morning, your position is very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep or into a peacetime mentality as if nothing serious is at stake. And God, in his mercy, has you here this morning and has this sermon appointed to wake you up and to put you on a wartime footing. I would also submit to you 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Uh, we're running in a race, but not all finish that race. If you don't run according to the rules, you're disqualified. So learn the rules and live inside of those rules. I, I want to remind you of what we learned in Jonah about repentance. You remember Jonah chapter 3 just highlighted what repentance is. Repentance begins when you're confronted by the word of God. Repentance reaches the heart. Repentance changes behavior, and repentance is a gift from God. You say, yeah, but I love my sin. I struggle to kill this sin because I love it so much. I enjoy it so much. I want to remind you of an example. There's a beautiful illustration in a C.S. Lewis book. Uh, it's a book called The Great Divorce. Uh, not speaking of marriage, but the divorce between heaven and hell. It's, a, it's an analogy. There's things in it that are totally made up. It's not like 100% thoroughly a biblical exposition of heaven and hell. But he talks about uh, biblical issues. One of my favorite examples is there's a guy, he's, he's dead. Again, it's not 100% biblically accurate because it's for a purpose, it's for effect. But there's a guy who's a ghost. There's these ghosts that are trying to figure out if they're going to heaven or hell. And he wants to go to heaven. And as he lines up to get into heaven... Somebody stands there and says, you are not allowed into heaven. You're not allowed because they have sin. It's this lizard that's on his shoulder that is the representation of sin. And so this lizard, as this man wants to get into heaven, this lizard is on his shoulder and he says, but I love the lizard. I don't want to kill the lizard. And the angel says, you have to kill the lizard if you're to get into heaven. You can't carry that lizard into heaven. The man doesn't know what to do. He loves his sin. He loves that lizard. Finally, he makes the decision, I want heaven more than I want my sin. He takes the lizard off his shoulder, throws it on the ground, stomps on it, kills it, squishes it, and it dies. And the moment that it dies, it transforms into this huge horse that picks the ghost up and carries him into heaven. I love that example. Because if you cut away the things in your life that maybe you love, you have some affection for because they bring you pleasure, it might not be fun, and it's always painful, but it's the very thing that will catapult you 
onward in your race as you run. Cut those things away, and you'll start running even faster than ever before. So to run the race to its completion and to run it well, number one, you must listen to the witnesses. That is witnesses in the scriptures and witnesses in present-day life. Number two, you must lay aside the hindrances. That would be encumbrances, good things that become bad things because they're idols, and sin, immoral things that are keeping you from loving Christ. Number three, the author of Hebrews doesn't just end there. He says, finally, number three, if you are to run well, not only listen to the witnesses and lay aside the hindrances, but number three, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We are to lay, every side, uh, lay aside every encumbrance, this is verse one, and the sin which so easily entangles us. And then he says, let us run with endurance. So don't just run for a little while. This is a marathon. This isn't a sprint. Run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Again, us collectively, we're all in this together. No lone ranger Christian. And then he says this, fixing our eyes, verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If you remember in grammar, fixing is present participle. Participles modify the main verb. They tell us how to do whatever the main verb is. The main verb is in verse 1, let us run. So fixing is a participle that tells us how we are to run. If you're to run well, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. And this verb, this present participle, is in the present tense. So it means that you need to, every moment of every day, be fixing your eyes intentionally, practically, on Jesus Christ. This is true in every area of life. If you want to do anything well, you have to look at those who are doing it well. If you want to learn how to be a good guitarist, you need to listen and watch Eric Clapton and Tommy Emmanuel and Stevie Ray Vaughan. And you need to listen and, and watch and learn from the best of the best. Right? If you want to learn how to play quarterback well, you have to watch the best of the best, the Joe Montanas, the Tom Brady's, even though it pains me to say that, the Tom Brady's of the world. Don't watch Jared Goff. He's not great. If you watch him, you won't turn out to be a good quarterback. So the author of Hebrews says, if you want to run your race well, you have to look at the one who ran their race perfectly, never missing a step, never once failing. Notice, by the way, what we're not supposed to look at, what we're not supposed to fix our eyes on. He doesn't say fix your eyes on your circumstances. Just think an analogy of running. We're running the race, and as we're running the race, we see, oh, the clouds are starting to get a little bit darker. Oh, it looks like it's going to rain. You start looking, you start freaking out. How am I going to run in the rain? As trials cloud out the glory of Christ in your life, we might look at those and fix our eyes on trials and say, how are we supposed to run now? The author of Hebrews says, no, don't fix your eyes on circumstances. He also says, don't fix your eyes on other runners. It's not fix your eyes on runners around you. How often do we do that? What, why, why is she running faster than I am? What's wrong with me that I can't run that fast? Or look at me, I'm better than they are because I'm running faster than them. No, don't fix your eyes on other runners. Another person that we're not called to fix our eyes on that's super important, that I think we're learning from gentle and lowly, don't fix your eyes on yourself. Don't fix your eyes on yourself. How often do we do this? Um, just look inside. Am I growing enough? Am I running enough? Am I praying enough? Am I giving enough? Am I trying hard enough? We can look inward, yes, but don't look inward so much so that you fix your eyes on yourself and not on Christ. This is why as pastors, as shepherds at this church, 
Hopefully you will never hear us say or develop a pattern in our preaching of you need to try harder and you need to look inside to figure out what's wrong and fix it and keep working hard. No, you need Christ. You need grace. Fix your eyes on the one who ran in absolute perfection. Don't fix your eyes on yourself. Look to Jesus. Be altogether preoccupied by Jesus. Why? Why are we to fix our eyes on Christ? Well, I think the author of Hebrews gives us two reasons again. So we have, listen to the witnesses, two types of witnesses. We have lay aside the hindrances, two types of hindrances. We have look to Jesus, two reasons why. Reason number one, because Jesus ran his race in absolute perfection. Look to the one who ran without failing at all. We listen to the witnesses, but we fix our eyes on Christ. Don't fix your eyes on the witnesses. Why? Because the saints who are preaching to us in the Bible all preach a better message than they live out, but not Jesus. He's the author in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author. This is the word for kind of a pioneer, um, somebody who's not like these other uh, witnesses in the Old Testament. He's the perfecter. That's somebody who is displaying the perfect model of faithfulness and finishing the race for you. Finishing it, and his presence at the finish line guarantees our finish at the finish line. So we look to Jesus because he's our only hope of salvation. He, in his perfection, has won for us a perfect record of righteousness. And brothers and sisters, this is why we gather together on the Lord's Day. We gather to remind each other that we are righteous before the Lord by no work whatsoever of anything that we could ever do. We come together to stay humble. You don't get to heaven by your own goodness. Christianity is not fundamentally, this is a question I love to ask people that I'm sharing the gospel with. What do you think the fundamental purpose of Christianity is? And the majority of people say, well, let's just try to live a good life, love people, be a good person, live at peace. That's the exact opposite of the purpose of Christianity, the exact opposite of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is you can't be a good person. Don't try harder to be a good person. Stop trying. Cease striving and trust in the perfection of another. John Calvin said, Christ's aim in all that he did was so to restore us to God's grace as to make us children of men, to turn us into children of God, to make children of Gehenna heirs of the heavenly kingdom. That was Christ's ultimate aim, to share his life, his glory with us, so that we might share his inheritance, his standing before the Father. But this is impossible for us who are sinners. Sinful people cannot dwell in heaven with God. So how can sinners be fit for heaven? How can we be cleansed? The problem is inside of us. The solution is outside of us. Every other religion says the problem is outside of us and the solution is in us. Christianity alone says, no, actually your greatest problem is you. It's inside of you and the only solution is outside of you. You can't help yourself. How can we do that? This is the doctrine of justification, which the author of Hebrews tells us since he, in his perfection, ran his race, he can give us his perfect record of righteousness, his robes of majesty and perfection and glory for my rags of unrighteousness and sinfulness. Calvin, in his institutes, used uh, in defining justification, he used the story of Jacob and Esau. 
You remember uh, Jacob steals the birthright, has to dress up because his dad's kind of blind, so he dresses up to, to smell like and feel like Esau. Calvin says this, as Jacob did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn, so he concealed himself in his brother's clothing and wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor, so Jacob ingratiated himself with his father so that to his benefit he received the blessing while impersonating another. We, in like manner, hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother Christ so that we may be attested clothed in his righteousness in God's sight in order that we may appear before God, before God's face unto salvation. We must smell sweetly with his odor. Our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. So you look to the one who is offering you that agreeable odor, as it were. You look to the one who is offering you perfection. You look to the one to whom you can take all of your sins and say, I can't do anything about this, can you? And he says, absolutely, I can take them. And as far as the east is from the west, they're gone. And as deep as the ocean floor is, they're gone. And your sins, I will remember no more. I will remember them no more. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have submitted to him. You've taken your sins to him. You've said, I can't do this on my own. Please help me. Please be my salvation. Then you have confident assurance that the Father looks at you this morning wearing the righteousness of Christ and says to you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Why should we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because he ran his race in perfection and gives you that perfection. If you're here this morning and you don't know that you've been given that perfection, or maybe you're still trying to earn salvation, maybe you're still trying to make your good works outweigh your bad works. Maybe you do feel guilt over bad things you've done, but you're trying to just get away, get rid of your guilt with things that you can do. I just plead with you, listen to the witnesses of Scripture and look to Jesus Christ who would say to you, if you try to get to heaven on your own, if you try to have your good, way, good works outweigh your bad works, you cannot get to heaven. The only qualification that you need to get to heaven is saying, I can't get to heaven and I need Jesus to be my salvation. Come to him this morning. Come to him this morning and live. This is why as a church, our worship through song must always contain serious fixing of our eyes on the person and work of Christ. Every small group must endeavor to show off the attractiveness of Christ, why preaching must be nothing less than a, a banquet that's served to our people to remind them Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Feast on him and fix your eyes on him. My friends, I plead with you, fix your eyes on Christ, fix your eyes on his cross, and never get beyond it. Make Jesus Christ the preoccupation of your life. This is what compels you to begin the race as you see Christ, to endure the race all the way to the end, to get up even when you've fallen. By the way, this also as you stare at Christ and fix your eyes on him and see how beautiful he is and how lovely he is, this enables us to lay aside the encumbrances and the sin that so easily entangles us. And it makes the laying aside easier, purposeful, and not legalistic. 
This is what the Puritans would call the expulsive power of a greater affection. If you see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory, you'll chase him down and gladly lay aside whatever keeps you from getting to him. One author says it this way, At the Sea of Galilee, Christ called the disciples to follow him, and so they did, leaving behind their boats and businesses. They were so taken with Christ that they never felt the cost of their renunciation. They walked in the epicenter of a new adoration that they, they had sli- silently slain their old affections. This new, beautiful adoration had silently slain their old affections. Renunciation that is self-aware is mere asceticism, suddenly boasting in its own magnificent sacrifice. The apostles came to Christ having surrendered the possessions that stood between them and the will of God. And even so, we don't remember them because they chose poverty, but because they adored Christ. And if we too are spellbound by his excellence, relinquishment will be more of a byproduct of devotion than a prerequisite of it. And then just my favorite line, true lovers of Christ can stand the pain of self-denial. True lovers of Christ can stand the pain of self-denial. Why? Because he is better than the things that you have to deny yourselves. He's better. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Through reading of scripture, preaching, singing, run with everything you have after him. But if... That's true. The opposite is true, right? If you are distracted, you don't fix your eyes on Christ, you will slow down. Running in your race will give way to walking. Walking will give way to crawling. Crawling will give way to regression because there's no neutrality in the Christian life. So run your race well by fixing your eyes on Christ. Why should we fix our eyes on Jesus? Number one, because he ran his race in absolute perfection. And number two, because he ran his race against the greatest opposition. He ran his race against the greatest opposition. End of verse 2. He endured the cross. He despises the shame. Now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him. Consider. That's that that word for calculating. Not just, oh, I'll believe this, but calculate it in your mind. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Brothers and sisters, Growing weary and losing heart is a very real possibility. For us individually, for us as a church, it would be very easy to grow weary and lose heart as we see so many of our friends, our brothers and sisters who have to move away, out of state, moving to different places. But the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus because he ran against even greater hostility than that and did not grow weary and did not lose heart. Why? Why could he get to the finish line in absolute perfection? Because in the middle of verse 2, it says he was looking to the joy that was set before him. Brothers and sisters, that's you and me. The joy of bringing many sons to glory, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1. Bringing many sons to glory, bringing you and me to himself. John chapter 17, Father, I pray that those who you have given to me would be with me also where I am so that they may enjoy your glory and the glory that you've given to me. Jesus wants us to be with him in heaven right now. And until that day, he says, don't grow weary, just like I didn't grow weary. As I ran my race in perfection so that I could win you to myself, you run your race, never in perfection. We fail all the time. 
but don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Why? Because you can make it to the finish line and get me forevermore. The race is always strenuous. Sometimes it's very discouraging, and occasionally it's hostile. But we can look to Christ, our great high priest. Remember how we talked about how Jesus, in his humanity, ran in absolute perfection? Notice that the author of Hebrews uses the word Jesus again, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is the first time since chapter 10, verse 19, that the author of Hebrews says Jesus, not Messiah, not great high priest, not son of God, but Jesus. Why? Because he wants us to remember that Jesus ran his race in perfection as a man, fully human, truly human. He has done what no other high priest could do. He is what no other high priest could be. He has endured what no other high priest could endure. And he can give us what no other high priest can give. So, CBC, how do we run the next seven years and beyond? How do we run individually the race that's set before us? How do we run corporately the race that's set before us? We listen to the witnesses. We give ourselves to the word of God every day. And this is what guides us, right? That's the, the centrality of our, our name, Christ Bible Church. This is our compass. This is our lens. This is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. We listen to the witnesses. We fight sin. We lay aside hindrances. We work together to kill sin. By the way, this book helps us do that. This book will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from this book. So we get into this book together and then we fight the sin that so easily distracts us, entangles us, and tries to take us away. And we remind each other every day, Jesus is worth it. He's better than sin. He's more satisfying than sin. And then we look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I want to end with Charles Spurgeon. A quote that I, I hope will encourage us as we run our race to run well. He says this, Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is, little love to our own dying Savior, little joy in our precious Jesus, little fellowship with the Beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart, but don't stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once, yes, go at once to the cross. There and only there can you wake up your spirit, no matter how hard, how insensible, how dead you may have become. Go again. Yes, let's all go again in the rags and poverty and depravity of our own natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain that's filled with love. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. And then he ends by saying, nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. So my friends, let's fix our eyes on Christ. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's thank him for seven years of running well. 
and his grace to hold our hand through every step of the process. And let's say, Jesus, help us. Keep our eyes fixed on you for the next seven years and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. He is the reason why we do everything we do. Uh, he is the reason for any affection that we have for him because we only love him because he first loved us. He's the reason why we have an example of how to fight sin. He's the reason of why we have hope. He's at the finish line. He made it as a human and he promises and ensures our making it as well. And so, Father, I pray that we would trust him. God, please, for those here that don't know you, that, that believe the, the historical facts about who you are and think that that is saving faith, God, I pray that you would wake up their spirit to see that it's not saving faith to simply agree with facts. The demons, James chapter 2 tells us, agree with facts. They know God. They believe he's the only way to be saved. They believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. They believe those things. But they hate you. So, Father, everything that we do here is done for the purpose of growing our love for Christ. That's what we want. Yes, agreement with facts, but never to stay there. We present the facts in order to show how glorious you are in them. And even as we've been studying together in gentle and lowly, God, I pray that we would not only and merely and exclusively and mostly, mainly not present events, biblical events to people as we share the gospel, but that we would, we would present the person, personality, character, and the love of Christ as our Savior, as our friend, as the one that we are enabled to call brother because of his work on the cross. Father, be glorified as we ask you now to work in the life of our church for the next seven years and beyond. Starting today, help us to listen, help us to lay aside, and help us to look to Christ, both now and forevermore until we see him face to face. And all we get to do for all of eternity is finally rest in being with the one that we've always wanted to be with. Jesus Christ, our Savior in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen. You know what, let's stand together and just